What's up, everyone? Welcome to an all-new episode. This is Suiting Up Podcast presented by Public.com and OutSystems, and I'm your host, Paul Rabel. You've probably heard of Lindsey Vaughn before. She's one of the most heralded Olympic athletes on the planet. She's shattered records in a sport that's excruciatingly challenging physically and mentally. She's persevered through a ton of injury, celebrity pressure, and continued to show up on the other side better and more resilient than ever. Lindsay's won four Women's World Cup overall championships, an insane total of 82 wins, making her the all-time leader in Women's World Cup race victories by far. She's the winner of three Olympic Winter Games medals and eight World Championships medals. On the show, we talk about what it's like to downhill race, what's at risk every time she lines up to head downhill. We talk about her crazy training regimen and mental toughness related to coming back from injury how to know it's time, when it's time to retire. We talk about how she was born to race, her transition to celebrity, a short stint on Law and Order, and putting it all on the line to be the best, to be the greatest ever. This show is made possible by our presenting sponsors, firstpublic.com. They offer a whole new way to invest. Public makes the stock market social, so you can follow other investors like me discover companies to believe in and invest with any amount of your money, democratizing trading and giving us space to talk about it. And OutSystems. They provide the tools to help companies like ours quickly build apps, whether that's for mobile or web, to solve for their business needs. We used OutSystem at the PLL to help us design our COVID app for the championship series, ensuring the health and safety of all of our players, staff, and coaches. We will be using them again in 2021. Here's the show. I want to start by talking about the risk reward of alpine skiing. So you say that your favorite part of downhill discipline is you're going 80 miles an hour. Yep. It's the funnest part. It's basically like driving above the speed limit on the freeway without the vehicle. Mm -hmm. So obviously really dangerous. Is that a a big part of, of what gets you going? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love the thrill of it and the adrenaline and you know, if every time you crashed, you were just falling into a a pile of pillows, it wouldn't really have the same effect. So, you know, you need that risk in order to feel the adrenaline and to make it exciting. I just love going fast as well. I have a tendency to drive my car a little too fast as well, but it's kind of a problem. But I, I find so much joy out of doing that. You know, eventually in my career, the risk was too high just because I've had so many injuries. Yeah but I enjoy the risk that's, but I can't stop myself. So you think about, I'll call you a prodigy in your discipline. And a lot of people have called you that, but you take Mm -hmm. like best ever and what they've done. And they have this competitive spirit to win at all costs. And, and that's definitely a part of your makeup. But the other part is you chose a sport that is, can be deadly. And I was just doing side by side and didn't take long on Google, but there's been a dozen deaths over the last several decades. So this is real. And uh, take that to a combat sport like the UFC. There's been seven deaths in total in the UFC. So it's like these guys are trying to kill each other. (laughs) And so there's another level. Have you ever thought about, all right, Lindsey Vaughn could have done anything based on your athleticism, your, your mentality, your competitive spirit. Would you ever veer off now that you know what you put your body through? 
I don't think I would have been good at anything else, to be honest with you. Really? In a perfect world, if I could do whatever I wanted to do, I would be a tennis player. That's always been my favorite sport outside of ski racing. I love the pressure that they're under. Everyone's watching them. Like, I really like those high pressure situations where it's like you have to make the shot. Yeah. But I wasn't good at it and I really wasn't good at any other sport. So I think I have a certain talent in ski racing. And I think you combine that with my work ethic and my. Uh, love for adrenaline and speed and it makes a good combination for ski racing but really not anything else <laughs> what about the pressure moment that's a, that's a big difference between individual sports and team sports you can have a bad game and still win because your teammates can pick you up and vice versa individual sport spotlight is directly on you whether you're a swimmer golfer tennis player ski racer so how do you over your development of your career starting when you were first two years old into professional and competitively? Did it evolve? And, and what's the sweet spot of being able to handle that pressure? Well, I've never really been a team sport kind of gal. Um, <laughs> I never was really, you know, I wasn't really in a team of any kind. I did soccer for a year and I was eight and I think I got a participation award and I scored on my own team. So for me, I've kind of always dealt with the pressure. I mean, I've had pressure since I was 12 years old and competing internationally. And I was made clear that if I won that race, that would kind of equal success down the road. And it's kind of a lot to take in at 12, but I really learned to thrive in those high pressure situations. Um, you know, when you really accept it and look at it as an opportunity to succeed and have even more success because there's so many more eyes on you and the pressure is so much higher. And if you can rise above all that and still perform, that's an even greater accomplishment. So I've kind of always had that and I just have learned to become better at it and eventually love it. And for someone who skied for eight, over 18 years, 14 Olympic starts, 25 world championship starts, over 400 races, do you, did you ever find yourself in a place where you could actually stop and enjoy the wins or was it always what's next? I enjoyed everything. I love ski racing. I've always loved it. It's never felt like a job to me. Hmm. And, you know, when I was on a roll and, and winning, you know, so many races at the same time, I, I didn't celebrate in the sense that I partied and, you know, had champagne every time, but I enjoyed the thrill of winning and, you know, just the thrill of skiing in general. And, you know, when I started to have all my injuries, it just made me appreciate it even more. So I, I've always had that love, you know, it's never been a job. I never feel like any time I'm on the mountain, it's, I don't want to be there. Yeah. I mean, I may be cold and I maybe hate the cold, but you know, as far as like, you know, racing and training, I, I loved every second of it. I, I was like trying to figure out where to locate either an image or a video, you know, they'll do those like AR videos of an athlete who's had a ton of injuries and there's just hot spots all over their body. Yeah. Can you even remember all the injuries and surgeries that you've had? I've had fractures so many times that I don't really, those don't really count unless it was a surgery. I don't really count it. If you did count the non-surgical injuries, count. the list would be pretty, pretty dang high. Yeah. I pretty caught, high. I caught this uh, moment where you, you've had so many injuries, you can tell that and your physio say this, your mind immediately goes to, all right, if it's operative, let's get the surgery. And then what do I need to do to get back to racing? And it's, it's almost like you're a machine 
when it comes to that. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> but there's this moment where I saw you, you're like, you exhale when you hear fracture. And that's where you're like, damn, this is, this is fucked up. She, she just <laughs> exhaled on a fracture because she knows how to respond. <laughs> yeah, it's a relief. So did you feel like you were building a lot of resilience through all of these injuries as well? And like, how do you, because so many athletes must ask you, I get asked that question, they think their career's over when they get injured and their mind starts spiraling around, oh, uh, there's someone who's gonna take my spot and all this other shit. How would you kind of balance that? I guess I have a little bit different perspective on injuries. My mom had a stroke when she had me and she lost function of her ankle. And so she walks the limp and she's never complained about it once in her entire life. I've never heard her complain, but she can't run, she can't ride a bike, she can't ski. And you know, when I look at you know an injury, I can come back from that. They'll repair me, I'll do my rehab and I'll come back. My mom doesn't have that luxury. So it's just a matter of perspective. And in the beginning, I, I would say it was more difficult to see, you know, the positives of it. And, you know, the fact that I was becoming more resilient and tougher mentally because of it. But as the injury started stacking up, it became really clear to me that that was a strength that I could use and I would have to use in my racing because I was no longer physically the person that I was before. And so I had to be stronger mentally and then outthink my competition in different ways tactically to make up for the fact that I wasn't as strong as I was before. One of the things we talked about before we started recording as we were referencing your, your HBO doc, which was really well done, is you were like pleased that they were able to do some alpine skiing education while covering you know, the broader and important story of your final race. When you talk about the tactics of like coming up with ideas for someone who doesn't know, call it downhill or super G, what are some of those nuances that you were like, okay, I can cut this turn tighter or doing something different? I watched a lot of film. I was more of a detail person. So I would watch the fastest girls and see what they were doing with their line. I mean, in downhill, you can really, you can take a different line than other people and oftentimes a line that people don't expect mm -hmm. if you're, you know, kind of thinking outside of the box. And I just had, I just had a different tactical approach than most. And same with super G, you know, super G, you only have one inspection and then you have to execute going 75 miles an hour. And that's very difficult to do because you don't know the speed. You don't know how big the jumps are going to be. You just, there's so many unknowns. Hmm. I, in Super G, I think had a really good way of analyzing and in some ways predicting what the, what the best line would be. And I also had a natural instinct to find the fall line, which is the fastest way down the hill. So I think you combine all of those things together and that equals, you know, success. Yeah. Did you feel like when, you know, call it post Vancouver Olympics and, and like stardom really globalized that that was also a foray to more people being interested in alpine skiing in the five disciplines? I think it wasn't just me. I think it was, you know, Bodie Miller at the time was dominating and Ted Ligeti was doing really well and Julie Mancuso. Like, I think we had a really strong team. And so in the United States, because of that success, combine that with the Olympic success that we all had, 
I think it definitely brought a lot more attention to the sport. Yeah. Because you know, ski racing it's not it's not on television all the time. Most people think that we race every four years for the Olympics. And you know, in Europe it's the biggest sport they have outside of soccer. Mm. But for us, you know, having all of those people succeed, that that's what it took to be able to get more attention to the sport. And you and Bodie were the two best Americans. And I guess going back to even ways that you were continuing to find an edge you took on men's downhill skis and they were i guess designed like bodies or longer and stiffer they were bodies they were bodies how did you come about either deciding that or was it like one day you were kind of like hey you know how am i going to improve how did you poach the conversation did you get a lot of negative kickback for doing that um people thought i was totally nuts yeah. um yeah the girls were laughing at me and then i you know was a lot faster than them and they actually tried to emulate it, but they couldn't do it. I mean, it for me, it's always a matter of how can I be faster? And I, you know, I'm always looking for new equipment, different line, a different technique. I watch video, take notes every run that I take. I take notes, what was the ski like? What, what you know, what was I working on? Was it better or worse? So I'm, I'm just really into the details. And, you know, I had a technician when I switched to head skis, um, Heinz, who is also had formerly been Bodhi's technician. And he's like, I have a few pair of skis that are incredibly fast if you can turn them. Hmm. And I said, well, <laughs> let's give it a shot. Because I had already skied uh, slalom yep. on men's skis because I was training with Ted Ligeti on ice and I had no chance. I was like Bambi on ice. And I was like, can I just try your skis? Because it seems like you have no problem. And I won a bunch of slalom world cups that year because I had switched to men's skis. So I, I figured, well, if Heinz, he thinks that these skis are fast and downhill and super G, then, you know, might as well give it a shot. And they're actually a lot better for me than the women's skis. They were longer, they were stiffer. They could handle the line that I was taking and the speed that I had. I could actually generate more speed because they were so stiff, but they're hard to turn. So there's that. Okay, we're going to take a quick break from all the gutsy downhill racing with Lindsay to tell you about one of our presenting sponsors, Public.com. With Public.com, you can buy fractional shares on thousands of companies to participate in a community that's built for collaborating and learning. There are over 1 million people on the platform, and Public recently shared they're officially PFOF-free. That's payment for order flow. They worked hard with their clearing firm to get this done as quickly as possible on behalf of their day traders, which are me and you. Allow me to explain. So orders made through public right now are directly routed to the exchanges like NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. This removes a potential conflict of interest from other business models like Robinhood, where they communicate with the brokers. This direct to the exchange method fully aligns incentives for us, the day traders, on public.com. They also became the first platform to switch on optional tipping in the app. This is 100% opt-in for members and all members still have the ability to avail $0 commission fees on standard trades. So join me today if you haven't already on public.com and visit specifically public.com forward slash suiting up and I'll give you $10 in free stock to play with. That's public.com forward slash suiting up. This is valid for U.S. residents 18 and up and subject to account approval. See public.com forward slash disclosures. When we have debates around greatest ever, we talk about numbers and a lot of times era. But in your case, it's numbers, era, discipline, and gender. 
and the dude who has the most wins is Stenmark at 86, but he was just too disciplined in Super G and Slalom. How did you think about, or why did you do five of the disciplines and focus on that versus you know, just being the best at two or one? Well, I grew up in Minnesota and so slalom was, you know, my base for ski racing. So I grew up just skiing slalom. I learned GS over time. I think that was the hardest discipline for me. And then, you know, when I kind of made it onto the ski team, the development team, I started training more events and um, I trained also, you know, downhill super G when I moved out to Colorado. But when I made it to the team, I was at that time more I was faster in super G and downhill than I was in slalom. So it kind of quickly shifted uh, to speed and then eventually came back to slalom and GS. Again, GS was the hardest for me. It was like the last piece of the puzzle um, and combined was two of my strengths. So that was a, a no brainer, but I never wanted to be just a speed skier. Mm. I always wanted to be an all around skier. I really liked skiing all five events. You know, I liked chasing um, the overall title. And at that time, there were a lot of girls that skied all five events. So we were all tired and all pushing ourselves in all five events. Yeah, just made it really exciting. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of like, you know, in tennis, you have clay and hardcore and grass, you know, but you play different surfaces every single weekend. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really hard because you don't have any practice. You're always spending your time racing, but that's what makes it fun. I guess if you're going after the most ever, then you're going to participate in as many events as possible. Well, I feel like if I can win in all of them, I might as well just race. Might as well do them, it. You know? Yeah. The counter to that though, is spending time learning new disciplines in theory means less time perfecting downhill. Yeah. But it, you know, you obviously showed that that wasn't the case. Yeah. I, I think, you know, for me, super G and downhill were always my strongest disciplines. And then there were, fluctuations of, you know, slalom was really good. I, you know, almost won the slalom title one year. GS was really good one year. I almost won the GS title kind of fluctuated depending on how much training I could get, depending on, you know, what the equipment was like, because I just didn't have the time, you know, to focus in on it. And I felt like as long as I was winning in downhill and super G and I was trying to win in GS and slalom, yeah. then it was worth it to do that. Again, there's there's titles for the combined as well. So that was uh, that's a no-brainer, but you have to train slalom and racing slalom is the best way to train for it. So Your last two races were, were Super G and downhill and you crashed in the Super G and you- Typical. <laughs> and you skied down the hill and it was like a gnarly crash. And then you competed in the downhill two days later and you finished in third, but when you finished your race, you were in first. That's like emblematic and, and probably a, a, a nice way to have ended your career, but you were really like specific to your audience and people who follow you around like, hey, this isn't me giving up, I'm continuing on, but you were basically like, my, my body has reached its end point. My fucking legs hurt on every turn. <laughs> every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't have an option. Even now people are saying you should do a comeback and I right. just, I physically cannot do it. I, my brain is still wants to compete. I know I could still, if I had a body that would function somewhat normally, I know that I could still win, but I just don't have that luxury. I, I I'm unfortunately beholden to 
what I physically can do and I just physically can't do it anymore. So, I mean, I went, I think six or seven years where I had surgery every year, sometimes multiple surgeries in the same year. And the last season, I mean, I was skiing with no LCL. I had huge fractures, like three, three fractures in my leg. And I was skiing with double knee braces. And it was just, I was literally, I felt like I was skiing with just held together by duct tape Yeah. Uh, by that point. So I think it, for me, it was the best possible finish that I could have had. Yeah. I didn't want to go out crashing. I didn't want to go out saying, you know, I just have to stop and not have any good result to show for it. I wanted to go out with some sort of style. And yeah. I felt like I was able to still pull that off, which was a nice way for me to end it. It's the double-edged sword for athletes who are planning their retirement is like, you, you definitely don't want to go out on a crash and you don't want to go yeah. out on a season where your team's the worst in the league. And then at the same time, it's really hard to go out on top because you're the back of your mind, what's gotten you there is like, yeah, I'm still on top. And so like, even in that moment where you were answering reporters the day before and you're like, Hey, I can still fucking win this thing. Yeah. And then you finished <laughs> ahead of the group and then you're in first and you finished third. Was there like a moment where you were walking off and you were going, oh, you know, I'm in a lot of pain, but Maybe I'll fucking keep going. No, <laughs> no, you were done. No, I, I, I couldn't. I was literally, I was more relieved than anything because wow. I was just in such a constant state of recovery and pain. And, you know, my every single waking moment was dedicated to keeping my body together. Mm. Therapy and workouts and, you know, recovery it was just it was too much and I, I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. In my mind, that was absolutely the last race, no matter what had happened. What about separation from sport now? That That's the other piece for athletes is like, all right. Separation anxiety, yeah. Are you enjoying it? You just came back from skiing this morning, so you're still <laughs> getting your fix. I am. I did some tree skiing to get the adrenaline going. So if I made a mistake, I would hit a tree. So that's like the risk that I really needed. <laughs> <laughs> For the first year, it was really hard because I didn't, didn't know how to turn off the competitor switch. Hmm. You know, I'm hyper competitive. I need that adrenaline. I need some sort of thrill in my life. And so I was just struggling to figure out what was going to replace it. And it was almost like mourning a death. Mm. You know, I have to accept that it's gone and mourn it and then move on. And so it took me a while to really figure out what to do. You know, I kind of tried to replace ski racing by working a lot, um, overworking, you know, traveling to events, you know, kind of kept my mind busy, but I never really processed it. And then this past year, I really, you know, especially with COVID, you know, I had to sit for a while yeah. and it was good for me to sit with that and accept it. And, you know, I was finally able to kind of move forward and now I'm, I enjoy skiing, you know, again, I need some sort of thrill. So the closer I get to the trees, the better I feel as long as I don't hit them. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's been a process. And I think every athlete struggles with it. Some deal with it differently and better than others. Some, you know, some obviously struggle a lot. I think I struggled for a bit, but now I'm kind of on the other side of it. And I think my body is really just happy that I'm done. Yeah. I mean, it's, it doesn't get talked enough about, I think that it is, uh, one of the only industries in the world where you can be the best at what you do, but it will always bell curve because sports are ageist and uh, we lose our athleticism. We get injured, you know, some people get cut or traded, but 
the, the net of it is you reach a peak and in other industries, if you're the best at what you do, you can just maintain that with that same work ethic and pedigree. So you basically have to redefine yourself, but you were already doing that commercially after the Vancouver games. And one of your partners, you've, you've been basically a, a lifetime partner with, and that's Under Armour since you were 16. But then you bring on the Visas, the Audis, the Red Bulls, the Hershey's, and there's this huge commercial element. I saw on your Instagram, you just announced or co-announced with DJ Project Rock's new collection release. And so what do you think about on, on the business side? My dad's always taught me to think about business and ski racing is such a very risky sport and it could be over at any second. So you really have to prepare yourself to be able to make money. You know, he didn't want me to you know, just focus on skiing and not get enough money out of it so that I had to retire and keep working. I, I just always had a different perspective um, in that way from my dad. And I always look at my sponsors as partnerships. Been with Under Armour, as you said, for forever. I'm the longest standing athlete they have. Have a great relationship with Kevin Plank. Going to the Super Bowl with him this weekend, so that'll be fun. Yeah. Red Bull has been my sponsor since I was like 18 or 19. They not only provided me with trainers and physical therapists, but they also helped me learn German. Hmm. It's obviously about business because um, you know, that's a huge part of it. You need to have a brand and you need to have marketing and it's difficult to do that in ski racing. You have to work twice as hard to get those things. But I also look at it as a, a really great relationship. And, and so I've had these great partners over the course of my career and they're still my partners. 90% of the, the sponsors that I had before I retired, I still have now. And so when you are able to build that in such a solid way, it it helps on so many levels, not so far beyond branding. Do ski racers, if they don't have an endorsement portfolio, if they're not consistently winning a purse, do they have other jobs? Some do. It depends on what level you are. Yeah. Home Depot used to have a program for Olympic athletes. I knew a ton of athletes that were doing that, not just Alpine skiers, but, you know, bobsled and thankfully ski racing, we make more money than most winter sports, but there are so many winter sports that don't make anything. And so they're forced to work outside of their sport. Yeah. And that's difficult. I mean, most other countries have government support. We don't have government support. So it's kind of all on us and makes it 10 times harder if you don't get any money from your sport and then, you know, have to support yourself. So I do know people that have second jobs. Again, it's, it's just a really tough position to be in. Yeah. Makes it hard. So government supported, would that be like USOC paying athletes through the four year cycle? We don't get that. We don't get it. We, we get, we get no money. We, some, there's some like grants, but usually it's for education. Or if you look at Austria or Germany, they get government money. Yeah. And US ski team, all of that support is from donors, from sponsors. USOC doesn't pay anything. I think if you win a gold medal, they give you like $5,000. Damn. And and what's their pitch? Is this like, hey, you have this huge platform, 4 billion people are watching you and you're, you're able to commercialize off of it as long as they're like Olympic sponsors. You don't win the Olympics for the $5,000 from yeah. <laughs> USOC, <laughs> for sure not. And, you know, most of our my contracts were set up, you know, so if you won the Olympics, it was a huge bonus. The sponsorship ones. The sponsorship, that's the only way we make money. I mean, if you win a World Cup, I think it's 30,000 Swiss francs and after taxes and conversion, it's about 15, yeah. maybe, if that. 
So, you know, you're not making money off of the actual racing. You're making money off of sponsors. And that's why, you know, people have to work second jobs because they don't have the sponsorship. And that's the unfortunate part. And it's getting more uniquely, I think, disproportionate around the perception of athletes who have either big social media followings or appearing on media outlets everywhere and call it the media circuit is that you also don't get paid to go on the Today Show a bunch, but it's like a, a huge platform. Yeah. And so then it comes down to how the business is being tied into that as a result. But you were everywhere and then still training. Your time was stretched, I would imagine, and you were winning at a clip that was unbelievable. How did you balance all those media appearances, obligations that you were doing? Training was always my n number one priority, but I enjoy working hard. So I looked at it as opportunities, you know, and I would be remiss if I passed up on those opportunities. It just means I have to work harder. Um, so yes, my time was being pulled in a lot of different directions. I made sure that always the night before races, I never had any press conferences. It was always just focused on the race. Um, so we had like a plan, you know, every Thursday we, we would do press, but those things are critical. If you want to be more than a ski racer. And I always wanted to be more than a ski racer. I mean, ski racing is great and I love winning, but in order to have an impact on the world or in your sport, you, you know, you really need to work extra hard. You have to work harder than everybody else on every single level. And so I took that challenge on and I really enjoyed it. Second break of the show to highlight our presenting partner, OutSystems, a partner of ours that keeps our business going here at the Premier Lacrosse League. OutSystems, they make applications that help you and I solve for the differences and needs of our companies. Allow me to explain. They're a modern app platform for building the software that helps us both quickly, correctly, and for the future. And they're inexpensive. OutSystems empowers teams to develop and deploy innovative cloud applications for capturing new markets, delivering new services, and winning new customers. Build the difference with OutSystems, and you can learn more at OutSystems.com. So an actual app that they will build. I remember being in Utah and having a PLL app that they designed that I would wake up every morning, click on it, and fill out a bunch of questions that had drop-down bars so it was actually really easy so that I could go to practice and play every day. And that got passed through to our COVID advisory committee that was reviewing any answers that were potentially problematic to flag for potential exposure and uh, we had none. So thank you, OutSystems, and thank you to all of you that are listening to this show. Let's go back to the interview. So what, what was up with uh, Law & Order? That's, is that your favorite series? And then you were able to get the gig on the final episode as I watched it. Yes. And it was, it was I great. I was a secretary. Did you see it? Yeah, I saw See my Rolex and my, I'm a, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an assistant who's supposed to have no money and I have my Rolex on. It was a slight over, over overlooking of the wardrobe. But you had important information that you shared to, to one of the I main did. characters. in a very important secret information. Right. <laughs> well, I've been obsessed with Law & Order pretty much my whole life. My parents are both lawyers. So it was like our family thing. We would watch it every week. For some reason, I I always felt like it kind of reset me. It was like my relaation because the crimes were always solved. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there's maybe 1% that don't solve. You know what you're getting. You know, they always catch the bad guy. Yes. You know, you know how you're, you're going to feel you know, afterward. Catch the bad guy. 
I feel great afterwards. Me too. You know? Yeah. And so when I won the Olympics, you know, it wasn't like I want to go to Disneyland. It was I want to be on Law and Order. And how can I make that happen? And apparently Dick Wolf saw that and Dick Dick Wolf is the man. So yeah, I was on. Boom. It was awesome. It was everything I'd hoped it'd be. <laughs> I wish I would have I could be on Law and Order SVU, but you know, that's a whole nother deal. <laughs> Well, that's next. Have you thought about pursuing acting more? I hosted the show on Amazon, The Pack, and that was hosting. So it wasn't really acting, but it was kind of like a live scripted show, which was a challenge. And talked to DJ about it and, you know, how hard it is and the hours and, you know, what it takes. And I think that if it was the right project, I think I definitely would be interested in doing it. I'd rather be doing like an action movie with The Rock. I'm not gonna, definitely not gonna do some drama where I'm crying, I can't do that. <laughs> but I, mean, I know my limitations, but I do think that it could be cool and you know, it's not my focus right now, but yeah. again, if the right opportunity presents itself, I, I'd probably take it. Have you finished your memoir? That's called Rise, that's coming out in October. So I wrote it, we wrote it, and then I didn't like it. And so we rewrote it again. Apropos. (laughs) Yeah, it just, you know, I want to make sure that my book is the best possible book. And I don't, you know, if I'm not happy with it, then I'm not going to put it out there. So I'm happy with it where it is now. We obviously have to rewrite a couple chapters. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to come out sometime like before the Olympics next year. Yep. But I'm excited about it. You know, it's kind of more my personal roller coaster of a life, you know, ups and downs and kind of how I got to where I am and what what lessons I've learned. Because I have learned a lot of lessons, you know, whether it's in sport or my personal life, you know, there's been a lot that's happened and I think it could help other people, which is yeah. kind of the point of it, more of an inspirational book and it's not really a book about just my skiing, you know, it's a lot a lot deeper than that. Yeah, I was talking with Abby Wambach about the difficulty of being so focused as an athlete at the highest level and being able to balance the obligations and time commitment of everything else in life and how she admits now with her relationship with Glennon, it wouldn't have existed had she met Glennon five months before she did when she was finishing her career. And that singular focus is really what is required. I spent a lot of time in sports psychology and and the sports psychologist will try to convince us that it's possible to do both. And I I get referenced to Tim Duncan a lot. I still don't think that's right. Like Tim is pretty fucking (laughs) hyper-focused. I'd say so. Anyway, I'm looking forward to to reading this memoir and and getting some tips on that. Do you talk with Angela Duckworth a lot? She's on your advisory board. Yes, I love Angela and I just love her theory on grit and I want to try to teach that to the kids in my foundation. Mm -hmm. I just think teaching kids kind of the, the decisions that they make have ramifications and that hard work does pay off and, you know, not to give up on things. And a lot of times kids have people saying that they can't do something and for financial limitations, or they just don't literally think that they could do it. But I want to teach these kids you know, about grit because the most successful people in the world are not the most talented. They're not the smartest. They're the people that work harder than everybody else. And when they have setbacks, they don't give up. Hmm. So that's just kind of my theory in life. And Angela, every time we talk, she just asks me so many questions and she's like, I want to do an MRI on your brain and like see what's going on in there. <laughs> I, I feel it at moments in my career and I'd imagine why Angela is ask you so many questions is that you've had 
you know, your 18 years of skiing, ups and downs, a ton of wins. But to get to those number of wins, you've also had a lot of seconds and thirds. Uh, but the injuries are also like big moments where you're, you know, you shared the story earlier, but you come back from those every time. I, I often find that even at the highest level in pro sports, you know, just as winning is contagious, losing is contagious, and you reach a point where you've got to be like, okay, am I going to lose all of my confidence, doubt myself, and continue losing, or am I going to turn this moment into this level of vigor that I'm going to use uniquely than the rest of the competition field? Because none of them can feel the way I do right now because I just finished last, right? And that can be, to your point, that turning moment or that something, that substance. Greg Popovich says this a lot, where it's impossible for him to say, we're going to take the same mentality after winning a championship because we already won it. So having that desperation, having never won before is impossible to fake. So let's find something else. I had a lot of years where I struggled. I had a year where I didn't finish, you know, like 50 out of 55 races. And I still didn't think about quitting it, like crossed my mind, but wasn't an option for me. I knew that, Hmm. you know, I was going to learn from it. And I, I approached, even though I kept falling, I kept thinking that every day was a new opportunity and kind of turning the page every time. So I didn't carry or I tried not to carry, you know, the crashing with me to the next day. I kind of always try to have a clean slate. But, you know, to your point, when you win, you know, you don't have the desperation is different. You know, your motivation is different. And I tended also to focus on kind of negative things that people would say about me, Hmm. um, which helped a lot with my motivation. So when I won my first overall title, I said, oh, Lindsay's done now. She's going to be content and she's not going to win it again. And I was like, okay, go take a hike. Yeah, I'd like to say a lot of other words right now, but I'm not going to. (laughs) And, you know, I just was like, I'm going to prove you wrong. And so I just continued to do that. And the more I won, the more people said I couldn't keep winning. And I love making people eat their words. It's great. Yeah. And then, you know, at the end it was, you know, she can't come back from injuries and, you know, those, those kinds of things always motivated me. And I, and I, I felt like once you're at the top, it's so much harder to stay there. And that challenge in and of itself was the desperation that I needed. That type of leadership that you bring to not only those on your team and those that you've skied with, but also through your foundation to young boys and girls, um, heard and felt loudly. So appreciate you sharing those, uh, those tidbits of advice. I have one more question for you cause it'll really help me. <laughs> How do you tune out? This may be an easy answer, but what, what do you do with social social, especially now has become a really toxic place. I'd imagine similar to when you're skiing, if you don't finish 50 of the 55 races, you're going to have a lot of critics, but it's kind of easy to easier for me to block out the pundits because I know what they're doing. Yeah. But when you have like your audience yelling at you, mm-hmm. what do you, what, how, did, how do you deal with that? It's been a process after I won the Olympics. Um, that was kind of when, when Facebook was huge and, yeah. you know, I did read comments and I would love to say it didn't get to me, but it did. Mm-hmm. And I, had to develop thicker skin. You know, I, I had to force myself not to read comments and not to engage with trolls. And I still do sometimes because I can't help myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have to tell them off at some point. At some point I just said, 
this is me, you know, if you you love me or hate me, whether I win or lose, you know, this is me. I'm showing you who I am. I'm not hiding anything from you. I'm not pretending to be somebody else. You know, I don't face tune myself. I am not perfect. I make mistakes, but you know, this is who I am. And I've had that mentality and it's, again, it's developed over years of dealing with, you know, social and trolls and just generally toxic people and just found more confidence in who I am and not really giving a shit about it. Yeah. I don't know if I can swear on the show or what's the day. Yeah. I think my uh, ticker on F-bombs is probably a dozen. So oh, I, great. Uh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. I stopped myself several times. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that um, and being open with us. Appreciate your time, Lindsay. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. How's your, how does your body feel now? Are you, are you healing? Is it, does that exist? I'll tell you when I get out of bed, I mean, fucking bones crack. It doesn't um, get better. It doesn't. I really thought I was going to. I was like, oh, it's going to be so much nicer when I don't have to do this anymore. And no, I mean, my back went out the other day while I was walking down the street. So yeah. <laughs> I'm like, how old am I? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like my knees, I pushed it a little too hard this morning going through the trees. And then I just had to, I had to wave the white flag and say, just have to do groomers now at the end. Yeah. Um, but it's just managing, you know, figuring out what you can take and what you can't. And I, that's why I have to work out so much because if I don't have the strength, I can't do anything. Yeah. It's actually way worse if I stop working out. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. So, yeah. So it's not going to change, unfortunately. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It's the life shows. <laughs> incredible moments on the show from Lindsay. Thank you for taking the time to share with us, LV. I'll admit, tough spot to end on the grim future of athletes who are done competing with a wrecked body like mine, like yours, but we'll stay active, keep our limbs liquid, and rely on great physios and modern science, I guess. Does that mean the workouts never stop? I saw MJ throw a dunk down on Instagram yesterday. The goat's 58, so that's a good sign. Now, for those of you that stuck around through the end of this show last week and the weeks preceding, we asked you to snap a picture of where you're listening to the show from and tag us with a question. I'll give you an answer. My Twitter handle is at Paul Rabel, and try Lindsay's. Hers is at Lindsay Vaughn. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your shows, and consider giving us a rating and review I'll jump into that comment section as well. Thank you for your support. This show is presented by public.com. They've created a whole new way to invest. You can follow me and other investors on public.com. My handle's at Paul Rabel for weekly musings on public companies to invest in sports, media, and tech. This week, I actually gave some tips on the best vegan companies out there. So not just sports, but they are a stock market social. And OutSystems, they provide tools to help companies quickly build apps from web to mobile. And when it comes to the PLL, they helped us design our COVID app last summer to ensure the health and safety of our players, staff, coaches within our bubble. And we will be continuing to work with OutSystems as we get to our 2021 season. Everything here has been made possible by the incredible team at PLL Podcast, produced and edited by Brett Roberts, research done by Andrew Manning, graphics and design by Liam Murphy, coordinated by RJ Kaminsky and support on our overtime newsletter from Joe Keegan. Subscribe to that if you haven't. It's really good. We'll see you next week.